I came, but there was a Mr. Woods who was principal of the school. He was very strict about the character and the preparation for his teachers and, and the students. He didn't tolerate any foolishness at all. I know once at Bridge Party at my mother in law's house and one of the girls was smoking, they saw him coming up the front steps and she almost followed the cigarette. <laughs> but my niece who comes from has been widely traveled, says she doesn't know any place in America where they have a clubhouse where high school students that's just exactly what Mr. Woods has meant to this community still, you know. So it, it wasn't easy. I mean, it's hasn't been easy, but and these children are so foolish for not taking advantage. So that's, that's your message to these children, to take advantage of what's out there? Learn all you can because you can't. I mean, you can get so far on the third. There's a knowledge of power. In partnership with the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, I'm Nia Clark, and this is Black Wall Street, 1921. You just heard from Tulsa community leader Jean Goodwin before she passed away. In the clip, she's being interviewed by author, historian, and educator Eddie Faye Gates. She was describing her encounters with Ellis W. Woods, the first principal of Booker T. Washington High School. She was also describing how important it is to get an education and how much value people assign to it when she was a teacher years ago. Mr. Woods lived on North Detroit Avenue. His home was destroyed during the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre. However, even after the massacre, he continued to be a leader in education in Tulsa. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into life after the Tulsa Race Massacre, specifically what African-Americans did in the years that followed to put their lives back together and rebuild their community. You see, one might think that an event such as the Tulsa Race Massacre would spell the end of that community or any community that experienced such a tragedy. As it turns out, Black Wall Street experienced a rebirth after the massacre or a regeneration, as some would call it. And once again, the opportunity and bustling business community attracted newcomers to Greenwood, in some cases shortly after the massacre. It attracted people like Jean Goodwin. According to her obituary in the Tulsa World newspaper dated January 26, 2006, Jean Bell Goodwin was a longtime educator and community leader. She was born in Springfield, Illinois in 1903, attended and earned a degree from Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where she met her husband and moved to Tulsa with her husband in the late 1920s, several years after the Tulsa Race Massacre. They had eight children. She worked as a social worker for several years before she began a roughly 40-year teaching career. She was also heavily involved in her community. Notably, she was the founder of the Women's Reading Circle, which started in 1964 and is believed to be the first interracial women's group in Tulsa. There's a room named in her honor at the Ruddisill Regional Library. Jean Goodwin died at the age of 102 in 2006. Her late husband, E.L. Goodwin Sr., or Edward Lawrence Goodwin, was a lawyer and publisher of the Oklahoma Eagle, a newspaper that served Tulsa's Black community for decades. In an article dated May 25, 2007, the Tulsa World describes E.L. as the grandson of a slave who was born in Water Valley, Mississippi, before he moved to Tulsa. He graduated from Booker T. Washington High School, went to Fisk University, again, where he met his wife, 
and where he played football while earning a degree in business administration. After graduating, Goodwin moved back to St. Louis, where he operated a shoe store for several years before he returned to Tulsa to open up a haberdashery. E.L. Goodwin was known for his strongly worded editorials and for being an advocate of education for African Americans. According to the Oklahoma Historical Society, his newspaper, The Oklahoma Eagle, traces its roots back to the Daily Tulsa Star, which was also an African American newspaper. The Daily Star was founded in 1912 under a different name before it was moved to Tulsa in 1913. Also known as the Tulsa Daily Star, the paper advocated for African-American causes. It operated until its dramatic and untimely end following the Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921. Thirty years after graduating from Fisk, E.L. Goodwin went back to school, this time to the University of Tulsa, where he received a law degree. He opened a law practice with Charles Owen, a former police officer who later became a district court judge in Oklahoma City. He was Oklahoma's first black judge when he was appointed in 1969 and the state's second black elected judge. As for Goodwin, his civic leadership earned him a number of honors, including an honorary doctor of law degree from Oral Roberts University and an induction into the Oklahoma Journalism Hall of Fame. After he retired from law and journalism, Goodwin opened up a catfish farm. E.L. Goodwin died in 1978. Gene and E.L. are great examples of the type of spirit and conviction it took for Black Wall Street to literally rise from the ashes and stand as an example of what can happen when a community of people work together and try to create a world that would offer future generations more than they had, even if they endure unspeakable hardship in the process. Let's listen to Jean again, speaking briefly about her life in Greenwood, her family's values, and how they managed to overcome and prosper. Today we're interviewing Jean Goodwin, who is a Tulsa pioneer. She's a living, breathing, walking history book. She's been in Tulsa since 1927. She knows a lot of history. Really, I've known Mrs. Goodman since I was a little girl, growing up in Preston, Oklahoma, near Oklahoma. The Oklahoma Eagle was our link to the world, our link to our heritage. And that paper was founded by her late husband, Edwin Goodman. And uh, I'm going to be asking her some questions about the paper, but. Uh, in addition to finding out about the paper and about uh, about her husband who went back to school and became a lawyer uh, and got his law degree at the University of Tulsa when he was in his 50s and had his large family, I, I want people to know that there's no excuse for not succeeding. She and her husband accepted no excuses. They just went out and did what needed to be done. They taught that legacy to their children who were all successful. and. We want that message to get out to our young people today uh, that you can overcome anything. You can overcome poverty, racism, whatever. And that is why we're interviewing this beautiful lady today. <laughs> Mrs. Goodwin, tell us a little bit about yourself, about growing up in Illinois, what it was like uh, in those days. Well, in the summer, we'd go visit my grandfather 40 miles away in Litchfield. There were no blacks in that area. <laughs> so. They always had a, a hunger for education. Mm -hmm. And we were taught that it doesn't ever matter if you're going to school, it's when you go. Mm -hmm. 
but my early memory was of a, a race ride in Springfield when was five, nineteen eighty. My father had a livery stable there. He'd come out of the country and his, his mother was a slave. Uh, we couldn't we could not use the word Democrat in our house because the Republicans had freed his mother. And somebody would say, Well, what did the Republicans ever do? He said they freed my mother if nothing else. So we learned early that we were to go to school and where we lived, we had only integrated school, <clears throat> but um, uh, very, very pleasant memories because my father said, get an education. He said that he had only gone to the eighth grade, that's as far as he could go, and he had to get out and help his parents, but he said, they can take your clothes. You may not have money, but if you've got an educated heart and a head, you have it forever, and you'd, you'd be prepared to do whatever you can do. So that's the way we were reared, six of us. And you came to Tulsa in 1927. Met my husband in college, from Fisk University. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he was not always in journalism. Tell me about what made him decide to found the Oklahoma Eagle newspaper, and what made him decide to become a lawyer? Well, he, he came here, here at, at Fisk. He majored in business because his father was a pioneer in Tulsa, and there were businesses here. But, um, <clears throat> There was something came out in the Tribune that was not it was detrimental so far as he was concerned. And he just said, well, I got my own dash paper. So there was a Mr. Blockman who had a paper in, behind his post office. It was a, just a flat bread press about as big as that 91 table. But eventually we got that for $2,000. I still have the check that he paid for that. Then, of course, we went to a larger building and gradually uh, developed. He didn't know anything about journalism, but he gradually developed an interest and we brought people in to help us. And 57 years now, we have them just a week. 57 years. Although, the many times it like he won't because it takes money to get out of bed. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a wonderful story uh, that I did not know about the, the Eagle. So it was really well, a protest, was, a protest against the unfair coverage. Where we could, see, when I came here, everybody said, we talked about in the Greenwood. Area green with Greenwood. So one day we just changed that thing to say North Tulsa because we heard about North Little Rock and this and so we called it North Tulsa. Just saw it again. And when, we, when I came, it was the most sharply segregated city in America. You just didn't go across Archer Street. I've heard that, that uh, even in the Deep South there was more geographic uh, communication between the races than, than Tulsa. Yeah, well, I, because I came in after the riot, after the race riot in 1920. Seven years, but they were just rebuilding at that time. But uh, it was an interesting place to live, and it was. Uh, I started teaching at uh, eighty-eight dollars a month. Glad to get it. Eighty-eight. And we had to go out in the city. We couldn't. We had to take to study in the summer. And we there was no place to go except to Langston or to University. We always go to University of Colorado. We paid our own expenses too. That that is one thing that. Uh, some people say today that education is just on a silver platter for young people today, just all around, just a virtual feast, and they do not take advantage of it. Does, right. does that bother you? It bothers me to the extent that they're, they're just shortchanging themselves. So in your family, education was stressed as a... Yes, and, and my husband's family, because see, they were born, and he was born in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And there was so much, so much prejudice there, although his mother had fifth or sixth grade education and they have a grocery store. They were very thrifty people. He ran on the railroad so that they were, he was able to save quite a bit to come here. Uh, but he wanted more for his children. 
It's right now that we're not free from problems. We've had as That's many right. problems, as many tragedies in our families. We're well known yes. anybody, but you live above them. You don't get better. Right. You get better. Well, that's really why we want to talk to people like you today, to let them know that their legacy did not start with slavery, or, or was not just rooted in slavery. Now, your husband became a lawyer, did he? Yes, because um, one of my sons was riding horseback out in the country, and he fell under a crane accidentally, a crane hit him, and he lost his arm. Well, we run a community where the schools had just, were just beginning to be integrated, and he would have, he would have had to go to Union School to, um, to uh, get his, uh, to finish school, because he started over when he was through with Carver. And then my husband decided that uh, they were, it was an agricultural area where they had 4-H and that kind of thing. Well, Jim had one hand, one arm. So we sent him to my mother's home in Illinois, to my sister. He was put in the boys' uh, Catholic school, so he did. He thought a better education, and he was good for me. And so then my husband said, well, he's going to need something to help him to make a living. And so he went, he, and he's the first, he and Mr. Hendricks were the first black graduates from Tulsa and uh, he got his, and he practiced 20 years. That's a wonderful place. Now, while he was doing that, you you were teaching and raising yeah, I, children. How many children did you I raise? I had eight. Eight children. But that was, I said that's the only famous thing ever, but then I had six maternity leaves. <laughs> six maternity leaves. And then taught my youngest children. I mean, I taught three of them. I was the first teacher in a, in a one-room school. Oh. Separate but unequal. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, Today they have all these gleaming labs and all of that, and they're not taking advantage of it. With our separate and unequal education, we still learn so many good And lessons. nobody can teach in a one-room school, but what we did there, you see, we probably had two or three first grade, and then I went from there and taught in big school. What you do, you take, you take your first, your older group of kids first, mm -hmm. and then you turn around, they can take care of a smaller group, two and three year out of around there. So that you were using that to, mixed ability in the group one group teaching another That's long right. before it became right. the modern role. I didn't know it was modern role. <laughs> so it, what it, we had to do that. It was just doing And we did. didn't have enough um, enough uh, books. So what we did, the kids bought, well, I'd take newspapers out there and we would, we would cut uh, ads on the paper, put them up on the board. And then we had a toy cash register and they would bring clean cereal boxes and cans and things. And we had a grocery store and just play for them. But in, in the play, they had to learn to read, they had to learn to make the grocery list, they had to learn to add, you see. This episode is a little special for me. One of the people we're going to cover is an unsung hero of the Tulsa Race Massacre, who, in my opinion, did not get enough credit while she was alive, and she probably still hasn't gotten all of the recognition she deserves years after her death. Her name is Mary Elizabeth Jones Parrish. She was a Black woman and, at the time of the massacre, a trained journalist, like myself. That common denominator between us is what makes this story all the more compelling for me. Like many Black women journalists, past and present, she worked hard to convey information and tell the truth about her community when most people at the time would rather turn and look away. Parrish was from Rochester, New York, and came to Tulsa in about 1919 or 1920, according to a report called Tulsa Race Riot, a report by the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921. She was a YMCA typing instructor at the time of the massacre. 
Ms. Parrish was hired by the Interracial Commission to write an account of the massacre immediately following the attack. Because she was a survivor, she wrote about her experiences as well as those of other survivors and witnesses. For example, the report cites an account by Parrish that reads, quote, Negro men, women, and children were killed in great numbers as they ran, trying to flee to safety. One unidentified informant later told Mary E. Parrish, The most horrible scenes of this occurrence was to see women dragging their children while running to safety, and the dirty bleep bleep firing at them as they ran. End quote. I'll let you fill in the bleeps. Ms. Parrish also collected photographs of the Tulsa Race Massacre and compiled a partial list of property losses in the African-American community. She published all of this information in a book she titled Events of the Tulsa Disaster. Parrish's book is one of the reasons we know much of what we do about the Tulsa Race Massacre and its aftermath. Not only is her volume the first book to be published about the attack on Greenwood, but it is a, quote, pioneering work of journalism by an African-American woman, according to the report. And to this day, it also remains an invaluable contemporary account of those tragic events. In regards to some of that property Parrish recorded after the massacre, this information became incredibly valuable when researchers with the commission were trying to understand the full scope of the Tulsa Race Massacre. They compiled a database of North Tulsa, the area of Black Wall Street where most African Americans lived at the time in order to determine how much wealth was concentrated in Black Wall Street before the massacre and how much had been lost afterwards. It would also give them some clues into which Black Tulsans may not have survived the massacre. Here's where Parrish comes in. That database included information from city directories, 1920 census information, and Mary E. Jones Parrish's account from her book, which details that partial list of losses and their addresses. This is an example of why I say so much of what we know today about the massacre is thanks to Mary E. Jones Parrish. During this research, according to the report titled, A Report by the Oklahoma Commission to Study the Tulsa Race Riot of 1921, Experts learned that, quote, between June 4, 1921 and June 6, 1922, Tulsa residents filed riot-related claims against the city for over $1.8 million. The city commission disallowed most of those claims. One exception occurred when a white resident obtained compensation for guns taken from his shop. The sum of the actual damage filed in the 193 retrieved court cases equaled $1,470,711.56, which is in close relation to the 1.5 and the 1.8 million of the other estimates. Of course, not all residents took insurance companies or the city to court, but most of the prominent businessmen and women, as well as the influential residents, did have detailed petitions drawn out against both entities. In 1937, Judge Bradford J. Williams summarily dismissed most of the court cases. End quote. It goes on to say, quote, A study of these claims reveals the diverse wealth and poverty in the community, one that could match or exceed that of many other communities in 1921 Oklahoma. End quote. According to Mary Parrish's book, quote, Court Case Claims, Warranty Deed Records, and Court Clerk Records, Many African Americans in Tulsa owned rental property. Black Tulsans who suffered significant financial loss attributed to rental properties included R.T. Bridgewater, J.H. Goodwin, Sadie Partee, Lola Williams, and G.W. Hutchins. Many other African Americans possessed rental property, including 
Carrie Kinlaw, Vigil Rowe, John Swinger, Emmy Works, S.M. Jackson, J.B. Stradford, Osborne Monroe, C.W. Henry, Mrs. Warren, and A.L. Stovall. Also, many white Tolsons conducted real estate business in the African-American district prior to the riot, end quote. Let me be clear. You cannot put a price on the hundreds of lives that were lost as a result of the massacre. The value of a life is, in my opinion, incalculable. But the loss of a life for a family could mean one less person to contribute to a household meaningfully and potentially financially. And while some experts today believe the financial loss was far, far greater than the 1.5 to 1.8 million estimates in the aforementioned paragraph, what is also important to take away from this account is that none of the Black Tulsans who were attacked or who survived the Tulsa Race Massacre were reimbursed for their losses. Few of the affected property owners had insurance, according to the book Black Wall Street by attorney, author, and consultant Hannibal Johnson. Those who did were told that unless they could prove negligence on the part of the city or state, the insurance policy would be void. In some cases, insurance policies contained an exclusion for damage occasioned by an, quote, act of riot, end quote. This is also important because it is with this backdrop of becoming recently homeless or losing just about all of their possessions and not being compensated for any of their losses that Black Tulsans who remained in Tulsa rebuilt Black Wall Street. As devastating and unimaginable as the massacre itself was, I would say the fact that survivors were able to literally pick up the pieces and rebuild their community after suffering so much pain and loss is nothing short of remarkable. Consider the factors that contributed to the creation of Black Wall Street the first time around. The land allotments by the U.S. government to people of Native American ancestry, including former African-American slaves of the natives, as well as those former slaves' descendants. Access to undeveloped land that had the promise of new beginnings. Access to capital that would have otherwise been available if not for the disruption of the local economy as a result of the massacre. Direct access to the economic benefits of the booming oil industry. These are all things that many Black Tulsans or their forefathers could tap into before and during the existence of Black Wall Street the first time around, before it was burned down. Not so the second time around. Even before the massacre, most Blacks were barred from employment in manufacturing and the oil industry, which is credited with spurring Oklahoma's impressive economic development at the time. So while Black Tulsans benefited indirectly from the economic growth of the oil and manufacturing industries, for example, as the population grew and so did the need for jobs, most could not directly contribute to the growth of those sectors or reap the financial benefits of doing so. Instead, many were laborers and worked for employers on the other side of town doing jobs that would otherwise be considered beneath those same employers. Janitors, ditch diggers, dishwashers, and maids, for example. It was their dollars that built Greenwood the first time. Not to mention, in the months leading up to the massacre, there was a steep drop in oil prices, followed by subsequent layoffs in oil fields. Because irony never ceases to surprise, while this further stifled economic growth, it no doubt further increased the anger and jealousy of those who would come to carry out the horrific attack on Greenwood. This is to say, of the Black Tulsans who decided to remain in their community and rebuild, most had virtually none of the advantages that they had when Black Wall Street was first created. 
And for Black people of the era, any advantage in a world that presented significant and constant obstacles to upward mobility as it relates to African Americans, every advantage could make the difference between survival and a life well lived or a life of extreme hardship. After the massacre, Black Tulsans had little to no access to previously advantageous streams of income. Their insular economy was ground to a halt because their community was destroyed. The larger economy of Tulsa in general was also ground to a halt for several days following the massacre. The larger economy of Tulsa in general was ground to a halt for several days following the massacre. Additionally, many Black Tulsans had incurred more debt with fewer and less expeditious ways of paying it off. Many had also lost loved ones in the massacre, which again, not only means the loss of invaluable life, but it also means the loss of another contributor to household responsibilities or income. And many had little to no ability to seek support from nearby relatives or friends, as most of their neighbors were also experiencing similar hardship. To further illustrate this point, an excerpt from Hannibal Johnson's book, Black Wall Street. Quote, The reconstruction of the Negro Wall Street after the Tulsa race riot of 1921, particularly that of Deep Greenwood, was nothing if not remarkable. Perhaps more than anything else, this rebuilding evidenced the determination of Tulsa's African-American pioneers to persevere, even in the face of seemingly insurmountable odds, in their struggle for freedom and economic independence. Wilhelmina Guess Howell, an elementary school teacher in Tulsa for four decades and the niece of Dr. A.C. Jackson, the nationally renowned African-American surgeon killed in the riot, recalled, quote, My father went off to Howard University in Washington, D.C. to become a lawyer. Then he returned to Tulsa to devote his life to helping his people. When the riot burned down his office, he rebuilt it and continued to practice law until his death in 1931, end quote. Another riot survivor, Juanita Alexander Lewis Hopkins, also recalled the Phoenix-like quality of the Greenwood District. Quote, after the riot, Tulsa rebuilt from the ashes. In fact, the Greenwood District, after the riot, was even more impressive than before the riot. There are so many stories to be told about the Greenwood District and its determined people, about its struggles with racism, about its creativity, adaption, and survival. End quote. The chapter goes on to say, quote, as a testament to the resilience and self-sufficiency of Tulsa's African-American community, the rebuilding began even as the ashes flickered. By 1922, the rebuilding of Deep Greenwood was well underway. More than half of the destroyed churches began to hold worship services again. More than 80 businesses in the Greenwood district reopened. The Negro Wall Street, later referred to as the Black Wall Street of America, reflecting the African-American community's changing socio-political identification, was well on its way to reclaiming its national reputation as an African-American business center par excellence. The burned out shells of the pre-riot structures were for the most part torn down. Many of the new buildings, however, assumed the forms of their predecessors." End quote. The book goes on to explain that the white frame dream house of entrepreneurs Sam and Lucy Mackey was one of more than 1,000 homes burned or destroyed by the massacre. They had difficulty getting the funds needed to rebuild. In 1926, with the help of an employer, the couple mortgaged their property for $6,500 to the Oklahoma City Building and Loan Association. They could not get the capital from a Tulsa bank. Nevertheless, that year the Mackeys built a new red brick fireproof home. That means it had no wood framing. 
the house remained in their family until it was purchased by the Tulsa Urban Renewal Authority in the 1970s. It is now known as the Mabel B. Little Heritage House. One more excerpt from Johnson's book, quote, For so long, the Greenwood District boomed. A stroll through Greenwood District during its heyday, the 1920s through the 1950s, reveals a glimmer of the vast array of goods and services available to African Americans in their own community. In the blocks of Greenwood Avenue and Archer Street were the offices of Drs. Patrick Payne and Lithcott. Dr. Lithcott, an ear, nose, and throat specialist, doubled as a gynecologist obstetrician. The Royal Hotel, owned by Simon Barry, sat across the street. As previously noted, Barry built Tulsa's first, and at the time, the only, public park available to African Americans and founded a Jitney bus service in the African American community, later sold to the city of Tulsa. Two morticians and their wives, Sam and Eunice Jackson, and Esco and Bertha Jackson, owned the Jackson Funeral Home next door to the Royal Hotel. Down the street on Archer sat Williams Garage, owned by the Williams family. Nearby were Clarence Love's Lounge, a popular night spot, the small hotel, Spinner Cafe, a grocery store, a Swedish bathhouse, and a bowling alley. Still farther down was Lena Corbett's dress shop, Neil's Jewelry, Spann's Pool Hall, Warren's Cafe, and the offices of Dr. A.G. Backoats, attorney Amos T. Hall, and attorney Primus Wade. In the same vicinity were the offices of the Oklahoma Eagle newspaper, American Business College, L.H. Williams Drugstore, Caver's Cleaners, Swindle, and Joe Bullock Barbershops, the Dreamland Theater, owned by Lulu Williams, the Owl Tavern, Roy Johnson's Pool Hall, Isaac Rebuilders, a U.S. Post Office substation, Sam McGowan Variety Store, Bulware Grocery Store, Walter Grayson Realty, and the E.L. Goodwin Popcorn Stand. I am going to great lengths to explain the extent to which Black Wall Street was eventually reborn because the fortitude, strength, resilience, faith, and tenacity it took to rebuild cannot be overstated. Many of us today could hardly imagine experiencing an occurrence such as the Tulsa Race Massacre, surviving it, and rebuilding one, if not the most prosperous African-American community in the country in a segregated Jim Crow post-slavery region of America, all while living right next door to the perpetrators who burned it down in the first place. And yet, this is very much part of the Black experience in America. That something so beautiful could be built out of something so ugly is not only commendable, but it is one of the finest examples I can think of to overcome the darkest, viral-like, maniacal expressions of hate, stare hate in the face, and politely step over it and carry on, not forward, but upward. Rather than hearing more excerpts of his book, let's hear from Hannibal Johnson himself as he describes Black Wall Street's regeneration. The important thing to understand about this story and the devastation that was wrought on the community is that the human spirit ultimately prevailed. Black people vowed to stay. Many of them vowed to stay and to rebuild, and they did just that. By 1925, the community was rebuilt substantially such that Booker T. Washington's National Negro Business League, the Black Chamber of Commerce, held their annual meeting here in Tulsa. The community peaked economically in the early to mid-1940s. 
And indeed, when Tolson's decided to rebuild after the massacre, they did encounter legal challenges from people in the community, some corporate interests in the community, who wanted to make it difficult for them to be able to do so. The point that I would make is that the Tulsa Tribune, I mentioned that daily afternoon newspaper that published a series of inflammatory articles and editorials. Well, just three days after the devastation of the massacre, on June 4th, 1921, the Tulsa Tribune published an editorial about the prospect of rebuilding the Greenwood community. And it was entitled, It Must Not Be Again. And it's a, it's a rather lengthy piece, but the first two lines are telegraphic in terms of the message. Such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. It was a cesspool of iniquity and corruption. So this is, this is a leading newspaper in the city of Tulsa, of which the Greenwood District is a part, saying that such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. Scores of people have just been killed. More than a thousand homes have been destroyed. Millions of dollars in property damage has just been done. Yet the attitude of some of the leadership in the community is that. It's reflected in that Tulsa Tribune editorial. Which was not unlike a lot of the, I guess, sentiment of segregationists and racists in Tulsa at the time. So you mentioned how remarkable it was that the folks who stayed behind to rebuild Greenwood, what is also known as Black Wall Street, did so in the years that followed the massacre. But they were not able to do so easily. Many of them were not able to have their insurance cover the homes, the damage that had been done to their property. Many of them had to take out loans and encountered obstacles doing so. How on earth did these people rebuild in a community, a city that ultimately tried to stop them from doing so, and in an economy that did not make it easy for them to do so? They, they used every trick in the book, I, I think is what I would say. For example, we know that the NAACP, the National Office of New York, sent money here to help with the rebuilding. We know that the, the fact that the National Negro Business League, Booker T. Washington's Black Chamber of Commerce, held its meeting here in 1925, that was a show of solidarity. Yeah, that was a signal of support to the rebuilding effort here in Tulsa. So people borrowed, they relied on family, they sought financial assistance from outside the community. They did everything that they could to, to sort of make it until the rebuilding could occur and uh, the economy could be, be revived. And again, as a business community, Black Wall Street or the Greenwood District peaks in about 1942. So the, the rebuilding was difficult, but it was ultimately quite successful. Would you say Black Wall Street was even more successful in terms of being a thriving community than it had been before the massacre at that point? Yes, certainly in terms of just the numbers of businesses and the numbers of, of entrepreneurs. And I, uh, Black Wall Street is, is certainly a catchy phrase, 
But a more accurate descriptor of the community, both before and after, would be Black Main Street. And I say that because most of these were mom-and-pop type businesses, sole proprietorships. They were doctor's offices, lawyer's offices, dental offices, pharmacies, general drug stores, cleaners, haberdasheries, beauty salons, barber shops, pool halls, dance halls, movie theaters, small business. These were not financial empires. These, these were small business folks in great concentration in this particular community. And that is something that I find really interesting. Can you tell me though, we know that a lot of people in Tulsa before the massacre and after the massacre were deeply religious people. And there were quite a, a number of churches that had been established when the massacre happened. Can you tell us what role the black church played in Greenwood and that includes before the massacre and after the massacre? The black church has always played a vital role in, in the community. The two historic churches that we talk about uh, most often in, in terms of the massacre in 1921, uh, churches that still have a vital and vibrant presence here are Mount Vernon AME Church and, and Mount Zion Baptist Church. So Vernon AME actually has a piece of the structure that was actually in existence in 1921, their basement has been preserved. The other part of the building was destroyed. It's rebuilt. The dirt floor on top of the foundation of Mount Zion was all that was left of Mount Zion after the massacre in 1921. But those churches and other churches are still vibrant parts of the community. I actually hosted somebody this past weekend, took them on a quick tour of part of the north part of town. And uh, what we noticed is that there's a church on virtually every corner. So the religious influence has been pretty strong here. In the next episode, more about life after the Tulsa Race Massacre. Be sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter pages by searching for Black Wall Street 1921. You can also check out our website, www.blackwallstreet-1921.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. One more thing. If you like this podcast or podcasts in general, check out an upcoming virtual podcast conference called Intelligent Speech. It's happening on June 27th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The theme is Hidden Voices. There will be about 40 speakers presenting on various topics. And if you couldn't tell by the name, the Intelligent Speech Conference aims to shine a light on little-known facts, events, and other information. Music.